You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Friday, June 19, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by our CEO and co-founder, Rao Pell from the Cayman Islands. But first, Jack Farley with today's stories. Thanks, Ash. Today, we got to witness a quadruple witching on Wall Street, one of those rare days where stock market index futures, index options, stock options, and single stock futures all expire on the same day. But despite it being sort of a freaky Friday, the price action in U.S. equities was relatively muted. It's not equities that are driving the narrative. It's the bond markets that's leading the ship, as the Fed's announcement on Monday that it would buy single corporate bonds incited a huge rally in credit this week. Over $50 billion of investment-grade bonds was issued and bought just this week, causing IG issuance this year in the U.S. so far for 2020 to top all issuance for the entire year of 2019. Meanwhile, the high-yield market continues to push forward at a frenetic pace. It's looking like June will shape up to be the busiest month on record. And credit default swaps, they just keep on getting cheaper. On the more illiquid side, worries about CLO risks are mounting. On Tuesday, Ed's going to be talking to Dan Zwern about this very topic. Dan has been sounding the alarm bells for years, so there's almost no one better to go in depth on this topic. Definitely stay tuned for that. In currencies, the spread between December 2020 and December 2021 euro dollars narrowed indicating that the bet on a curve steepening is not playing out as expected. Brent Johnson and Lynn Alden just had a fantastic conversation about the dollar. It comes out on Monday, so watch it. In other news, investors in Wirecard were stunned yesterday to discover that 1.9 billion euros was missing from the German payment processors' accounts in Singaporean banks. The shares are down nearly 75% over two days, and the CEO has resigned as allegations of improper accounting engulf the company. And lastly, as the virus spreads and safety measures are increasingly politicized, the risks to investors are mounting. Coronavirus cases are surging globally. Yesterday, new reported cases hit over 166,000, the highest number yet since the outbreak started earlier this year. And 81 countries are seeing an increase in cases over the past two weeks. Wearing masks has become a point of contention and a tinder for the political fire. American Airlines removed a conservative activist from one of their flights this week after he refused to wear a mask and Delta Airlines released a press release reaffirming their commitment to passengers wearing masks. And with that, let's turn it over to senior editor Ash Bennington and a man who needs no introduction, Real Vision's fearless CEO, Rao Pal. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Welcome, Raoul. Welcome, Ash. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. We've had the quadruple bazillion witching hour go past, and interesting enough, it, it kind of pinned the S&P all week, as everyone kind of imagined it would. And uh, just into the close here, we're down kind of one and a quarter percent in the futures. Interesting to me because when I spoke to Ed last week, both of us had the sneaking suspicion that there's a potential, I think, that what I'm referring to as the hope phase top might be in. 
it's very early to make a call like that, but I'm getting more and more confident it feels like it could be. For me, it's a break of that 39.25 level on the futures, i.e. taking out that recent spike low, would say that something's changed. And that was very consistent with the pattern we saw in the Nikkei 1990 with um, the S&P 2001, S&P 2008. So I'm kind of all over this because I've I think we've got this period of vulnerability that we're coming into. So, yeah, and as you said, the hope phase. We are up 1.8 percent on the week from last week's close on the S and P. Yeah, I'm interested to you know the thesis that I've been carrying around and I'm observing in markets is is obviously the U.S. second wave. I've always said we will probably see further issues and further shutdowns elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be playing out. I mean, the extraordinary story today of Apple closing a bunch of stores in all of those states in the United States where um, the virus is growing fast. And yeah. they were very early before, I think, weren't they? They were. Uh, they're closing stores in Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Arizona this time around. Uh, they were among the very first to close last time. Uh, a total of 11 stores, it looks like to me, by my count, closing. Uh, and they are also among the most rigorous in enforcing all employees and customers wearing masks in their retail locations. Yeah, and you know, that's a signal. I mean, Apple are not a stupid company and they've made a clear decision on that. Now, again, I'm not interested ever in, you know, the arguments over the death rates or the ICU rates. It's it's behavior that we care about. That's what drives markets. Right. And if we start to see shutdowns of retail change of consumer behavior patterns and stuff like that, well, that's going to have a knock-on effect to the economy and also a knock-on effect to the stock market, which is a more behavioral voting mechanism, as it were. Yeah. You know, it's also interesting when you talk about Apple and the FANG stocks, uh, you know, whether you love them or hate them, Silicon Valley companies are intensely data-driven. Uh, and Apple is an interesting one because they have retail locations. So it's interesting, I think, to use them as a bellwether of what the data is telling them uh, not just on a on a backward looking basis, but also what they're projecting out going forward. Well, you know, you can you can get access to the Apple and Google high frequency data sets for mobility. So they have a lot of idea of what's going on just by the data that they have. So not that they will tell you they're closing their stores, but I tell you, it's not just Tim walking in the office going, oh, I think we should close North Carolina today. No, no, no. They have quite a lot of data and some advanced reasoning on why they do it you know yeah. fascinating again we've just seen that um you know parts of beijing have closed down you know all kids don't go to school and i use the TomTom -tom data which is similar to the apple mobility and everything else and it confirms the same thing suddenly the human behavior in beijing changed dramatically and immediately so flights are empty all the flights got cancelled then you see that foot traffic has collapsed um, tra traffic on public transports collapsed. Michael Pettis put out a long tweet about that today. It's like, it's fascinating. And that, I think, is something I highlighted from the beginning. It, this thing is lingering. It's not going to go away because there is no vaccine coming yet. Um, and so we have to deal with these rolling shutdowns. And my guess is Houston will end up closing down in the next three weeks um, because it's pretty much out of control there. Yeah, Texas, California, and Florida seem to be hot spots. Uh, California now, obviously the most populous state in the country, over 165,000 cases. And interestingly, uh, Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma, obviously very prominently in the news for two reasons. One, uh, because of President Trump's rally there on Saturday, and two, because of very large uh, Juneteenth celebrations, which Kamala Harris 
and other famous um, people in America are attending to show their support. So a very interesting situation, up 3.8% in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, and we're seeing some really accelerated rates of growth across. So the United States is now almost back at peak daily counts. It's just a very shade below the peak. But I think we're going to be accelerating through it as we go because, you know, because of the the decision that's made about the reopening, we're going to have to see, okay, how much coronavirus will the nation accept? And what does it do to human behavior? And secondly, what does it do to ICU beds? So the reports this week were out that Arizona's ICU is already 80% full. Yeah. You know, I have um, more concerns, even though Texas has a great healthcare system. You know, let's let's see what happens with Texas. I mean, they already reopened. I think there was a football pitch that they were use it, going to use as a hospital. They didn't use it first time around. They're now kind of dusting it down again, just in case that they need to have emergency hospitals. Yeah, obviously better to have capacity that you don't need than the other scenario. You know, interestingly enough, the uh, highest number of global new cases ever recorded today, 150,000. Yeah, I mean, we've got the whole of South America is in trouble. We have India in trouble. Um, we have Russia um, in trouble. So there's some really big cases. And the U.S. is by far and away the global leader. Um, there was a very interesting charts that were going around today showing the difference in curbs between Europe and the U.S. So Europe had a hard lockdown. Uh, Europe managed to get most of its RO down below zero. The U.S., as of today, I think 30 states have ROs above uh, one. Yeah. I'm sorry, uh, the other, um, Europe got their ROs below one. Over 30 states have an RO above one now. So usually usually that means we're going to see a accelerated rise, whether it's exponential or not. I'm not going to argue with people over that, but an accelerated rise. And again, people, a lot of people don't understand the ICU beds issue, you know, and death rates. See, what happens, I was speaking to a friend of mine here in Cayman Islands who runs the hospital. He said, look, it's really simple. He said, we have massive capacity. And then when it's full, people die of a broken leg. <laughs> or whatever, you know, some ridiculous thing because we can't get people in. So car accidents, suddenly be excess fatalities explode. So it's right. not the death rate of the virus itself, it's the excess fatalities caused by the inability to administer urgent care to people. So, you know, that, that those are the issues that come into play. And it's, you know, it's, I do, well, it is what it is. Yeah. You know, you were talking about the lockdown and the severity of the lockdown. There was an article in The New York Times that I saw this morning that China is uh, trying a new approach. They're exercising restraint. And China's view of restraint is posting fewer guards outside of apartment buildings to keep people in when there are outbreaks. So a very different view of the world, obviously, in China than in Western democracies. Yeah. And look, they had the hardest lockdown in the world um, and they've still got outbreaks that keep coming. Um, so, you know, it's this is... This is really complicated. This is what pandemics, people have warned us about pandemics because they are so complicated. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not just a one event. It's an ongoing, rolling, morphing event. Um, so, yeah. you know, we'll have to see. So, I, you know, I think the markets are going to realize this soon. It feels a lot like that February period when the markets didn't realize it. I'm also noticing there's a lot of solvency issues rising. The number of bankruptcies are rising. You know, as we've all thought, this situation seems like it's a lot further to play out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to your point, Rao, um, Neil Ferguson on with Larry McDonald talking about precisely that issue, the historical nature of context. 
Exactly, exactly right. Ed and I talked about it last week. That was a great piece. And Neil's got some really smart people around him as well that um, are involved in the science of this and the vaccine research and all sorts of stuff. Plus, he's reached out to a lot of the professors at, um, at many of the top universities who look at the historical prevalence of, of uh, uh, pandemics and how they're affected, going back to Roman times. So Neil's yeah. done some homework on it. I guess the major difference now with uh, Roman times is this is the first pandemic, the first real global crisis, that we have this massive swell of data in real time from GPS, from mobile devices that are physically tracking people's movement, contact tracing, geographic tracing, sensor tracing in a variety of different ways. It really is an interesting time. What's interesting is we're now all using this data and we're kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Look, it's proving this. If this were not the pandemic, and I think a lot of people raise this point, and rightly so, they'd be outraged yeah. that Apple is tracking exactly where we are at any stage. That's what's going on here. Um, listen, and I've argued about this for a long time. We lost that war a long time ago. That war over our digital liberty ain't never going to happen. Um, and this proves it because governments want this data, corporations want this data, and we have accepted it as a society because we want the facilities that come with it and it's kind of sad but that that digital liberty thing we lost the battle years ago well perhaps uh blockchain will help us reclaim some of that that's right i mean there's a lot of people who are building stuff i mean for example the um block one guys have built voice which is just about to launch in july yes. which is a blockchain uh, driven browser we know also our friends, because these companies are all based in Cayman, we have Brave Browser, and that's where um, the browsers are on the blockchain, and you're more in control of distributing your own um, usage of the internet. So you basically get paid for your eyeballs um, and stuff like that. So it changes the onus completely back to you, where you get your security and you can sell it should you want to. You know, I think that's a huge shift and just one of the small things that blockchain is going to do here. I think it's going to change a lot of stuff. And it has an ability just because of the world that it came out of. It came out of a very suspicious. We want to change the system. You know, we don't like centralization. Sure, some of it is centralized, but a lot of it will allow security of our own data personally. Yeah, and it's so interesting how we begin to renegotiate those balances, those trade-offs with ourselves, with these new tools that allow us to do it at a much more granular level than was ever possible before. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. So it's an interesting world. And, you know, as you know, well, both you and I are, um, are very, very interested in this alternative world yes. because, you know, I do think that it's going to give us a lot of answers. It's going to give us a load of opportunities. And answers, opportunities, and change are very interesting to me personally because, um, you know, it keeps us stimulated, but it also gives us uh, an optimistic future from some of the things or many of the things, whether it's the impact of central banks or the loss of privacy. So many of these things get solved. Not everything solves all of those problems. And there's a big shit fight usually within the crypto community of what's what versus what. The point never, being that is, never happens. <laughs> is this entire space is 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 growing fast, and I'm super excited what we're about to do. 
Yeah, it's it's incredibly interesting. And, you know, some of those frictions are what make it so interesting. The idea that it isn't a, simply a monolithic block of people. There's definitely a lot of contention. Um, you know, people have been burned in the past in some ways. Uh, and yet the promise for this technology is so vast. And so I guess it's not surprising that you would see some of those uh, some of those frictions, that banging of ideas uh, on Twitter and elsewhere. Yeah, I think um, what's interesting is if people are checking their emails this evening from Real Vision, that if you're a Real Vision subscriber or if you're not yet a subscriber, um, you'll start to see the crypto gathering, which is an amazing groundbreaking event. Because we've taken a virtual conference, which sounds like a, most people do it as a bunch of boring Zoom calls, and we've turned it into a whole kind of tribal gathering event of everybody in the space, the biggest names in every aspect from the hardcore Bitcoiners to the Ethereum guys, to the DeFi guys, to the applications people, the, the big thinkers, the macro thinkers, everybody is coming for two days to Real Vision. Now, what's amazing about this whole thing is every member of Real Vision gets it for free. So it, it's, it's going to be incredible. And then you know, a lot of other people in, I think the tickets are $149 right now. I think they'll go up in price. But this is going to be the biggest event in crypto. Yeah, uh, the names alone are, are pretty incredible. And, and, and we're not just doing this for the camera. This morning, you and I were talking. Really? You got that guy? I didn't. Wow. It's a it's an impressive. It's a really impressive list of names. It's just not it's not exaggerating to say it's a who's who of the most and also, powerful people in the space. In, in the great way that Real Vision does stuff, it's really unique. So we've kind of based it around the idea of a kind of a music festival idea. Yeah. Um, so you've got the main stage, which is where this is going on. There's basically an alternative stage because there's almost double programming. There's so many people on this. Everything is recorded so you can watch it later. But then there's different tents. So there's a tent of Real Vision's best of back catalog in crypto. So people who are not familiar with Real Vision or even people who are, who haven't seen it, it's all there in one place. We've got third-party video documentary films about it. We've got kind of a Meet Real Vision tent going on. We've got um, a Crypto 101. So a lot of people are like, well, I understand Bitcoin. I have no idea what DeFi is. Well, you've come to the right place. I mean, it's something for everyone. It is literally a festival. Um, you know, it's the crypto gathering. It's, you know, I'm really excited about this. Yeah, me too. And we've put a lot of thought into it. And I think it, we've done a good job of balancing the, for experts, for people who are relatively new to the space, for people who want more information about a particular thing to try and balance that out. Yeah. So that's a, that's an exciting thing coming up. Yeah, we've also had fun with the pairings too, I think, doing the peer-to-peer -peer interviews that Real Vision has done on the macro side and bringing that into the crypto space as well. Yeah, exactly right. So yeah, it should be super cool. So, so Rao, what else are you looking at? I know we talked a little bit earlier about, um, about the European uh, summit on um, fiscal response and budgets. Again, this is a theme that I've brought in most of the um, daily briefings is my thinking around how central bank actions have been phased. The Fed went first and large. Okay. Everyone's like, the dollar's going to collapse. And we've got, coming up next week, Brent Johnson and Lynn Alden to talk about the, the dollar bull versus bear argument. But for me, what's really interesting here is the Fed did theirs. The dollar weakened a bit. Now the ECB, the Bank of England, and the BOJ are about to hit hyperdrive with their printing. 
So I just have a feeling that it's going to be interesting as that starts building. I'm also very interested in the fact that already I don't think the Europeans will have done enough to deal with the size of the, the economic damage that they've taken and the solvency and liquidity events that they've got. The European banks don't trade great. Um, and I imagine that three months down the track, we're going to have to be looking at more. So while the US is probably less likely to do that and more likely to do fiscal stimulus. So let's wait and see. But it's a, it's a very interesting time, I think, um, as the real responses start ramping up and the ones that go on. Because if you remember, after the financial crisis, the responses were going on for several years afterwards. You know, the European banking crisis didn't happen until three years after. So yes. I think we've got a lot to go. Yeah, I was joking earlier this morning that in many ways it was a typical European summit. The groups all agreed that it was a very serious problem and nothing else. It was the only point of agreement they had, right? I mean, some of the it's the summer in Europe now and everybody goes on holiday until September. So nobody wants to do anything that requires anybody meeting or talking with each other because everyone wants to go to the Mediterranean. Now, they, they can't go to the Med this year, but they'll figure out something that they'll have to do. The, the ECB is a funny beast. It shuts down for three months. Sounds lovely. Just to put some, uh, just to put some numbers around it, they're negotiating a 1.1 trillion euro budget uh, and 750 billion euro bond raise uh, for COVID aid, mostly for Spain and Italy. Um, the divide is the typical one between uh, the Club Med countries and the Frugal Four. That's Austria, the Netherlands, Denmark, and Sweden. Coming out of the meetings, Spanish uh, Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez talked about this as, and I quote, wasting time. Swedish Prime Minister Lofen suggested the parties are still fairly far apart. Yeah, so we might even not get that debt mutualization, or it's going to come quite hamstrung. And the issue was that this was supposed to guide the way for everybody for the future of Europe, of debt mutualization. There's also Finland that's kind of a bit pissed off about this whole thing as well. Yeah. So it's telling us the next round when they come and say, OK, we've done it for 750, but that was just child's play. What we need to do is another three, three or four trillion. They're not going to get it through. It's just yeah. not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So I, you know, I'm still extremely concerned about the European banks and extremely concerned, or not extremely concerned, I'm still negative the euro, even though it got to the top of its range where, okay. I, you know, where yeah. I, you know, I would have been forced to reassess, but I thought it was going to come back down and it looks like it is. Yeah, maybe this is my majorly simplistic American mind thinking about this, but I always come down to, do you know 27 people who agree on anything? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, exactly right. So, yeah. So, you know, I, I've got my focus on that. I've got my focus on, as I said, thinking this window of vulnerability we're walking into now where the U.S. fiscal stimulus starts um, shrinking. We've seen what was interesting is that the Fed balance sheet shrunk. Now, everyone goes, yeah, but it's only the FX swaps. Yeah, but the FX swaps were part of the global liquidity that have now just been taken away. So, again, there is a net tightening of liquidity from the U.S., and a net increase in liquidity from elsewhere around the world. I think that's going to make the market struggle. And then, um, as myself and George Consalves talked about on um, uh, Real Vision Plus on our, on our live um, interview, is that this whole window of vulnerability is also when the Treasury have to issue a load of bonds, and they're going to be taking trillions of liquidity out of the markets. So, you know, I think we've got a summer of withdrawing liquidity in the US 
and an increase of fear over how big the second wave is or places like California, it's still the first wave. So how big this COVID issue is and what the knock-on effect. So that's what's coming while stimulus checks roll off for a lot right. of people. And the unemployment situation is going to get messy here. Uh, and people aren't going to understand the numbers for a long time because a bunch of people are going to go back into the work. There's a bunch of people who are going to stay off work. And then if I'm right about solvencies rising, the unemployment numbers will rise again. So, you know, it's a lot longer situation here. And, you know, I, I, I am concerned over the next three months where I think w the markets could be in for a really rough ride. You know, Rao, that reminds me, one of the things that you've spoken about very eloquently in the past is the way that markets trade uh, effectively at the margins. You know, someone may go up to the Fred website and look at the WALCL series, which is the total Fed balance sheet, uh, less eliminations from consolidations. And they'll look at that chart and they'll say, but it's just this tiny little incremental rollover. Why does that matter? So when, the, you when you take the week on week stimulus or the month on month stimulus, it's collapsing. Right, so it's the marginal rate. So if somebody gives you $10,000 today and then $8,000 tomorrow and 6,000 the day after, then for that, your, your, your um, pa uh, behavioral pattern changes, right? But if you give 10,000 today, 10,000 tomorrow, 10,000 next day. So, so what happens is that marginal change creates a marginal shrinkage of liquidity overall. And it's the same with taking there are no $1,200 checks left. They've all been spent or punted in the stock market so, or, or saved. So that extra incremental spending disappears. The people who go back to work may get a go back to work bonus, but then after that, they're back to as they were. So they're spending money on transport and doing all the other stuff. And the people who are left behind, the unemployed, well, they don't get many benefits because the Trump administration wants to pay people to go back to work. Well, if you've been made redundant, there's no job to go back to. What are you supposed to do? Stand in the street with a placard saying, give me a job? It takes time. And these people will stop spending. And they're less likely to be spending money on Robin Hood because they've got free time and more worried about, okay, how the hell am I going to pay my bills? Um, you know, how much does the US government give me to be unemployed? It's a whole mental shift. Because don't forget, everybody basically paid to stay at home. Yeah. Wonderful. It was great. But that's not the same anymore. We now go from that situation to bad recession situation where the realities are meaningful. And that's not just in the US. This is globally on an unprecedented scale. And all this stimulus comes, to, comes off. Sure, there's going to be more stimulus. But I'm, I'm telling you, a Green Deal is not going to shift the dial in this for years. And the size of what they have to do for fiscal, it needs to be like the old Green Deal. It, it, this needs to be trillions and thought out massive infrastructure place. And guess what? We don't employ a lot of jobs in, constru in constructing dams or whatever it is. So you need yeah. to figure out how you're actually going to employ people when really what you want to do is apply 5G technology. Well, that doesn't employ a lot of people. People to put up 5G dishes? I mean what so right. we have to be really careful on misinterpreting the fact that oh yeah everyone's going to get a pickaxe on their shoulder and they're going to go out and work in a, a harder honest living it's not going to work like that so we're in a different world you know this is such an important point it's the union of technology behavioral economics 
macroeconomics and markets. You know, I don't, I don't know if you can see this, Rob, but I changed my uh, studio around here a little bit. You see these file cabinets behind me, slightly different. Yeah. Marginally different. And um, <laughs> I actually was cleaning out these drawers and I've had this, this desk in place for about 10 years. And one of the things that I found was a ream of resume paper. You would never, it doesn't exist today. No one under 30 knows what resume paper is because you've never printed a physical resume and handed it in to a would-be employer. Now, the, the point here is exactly what you were saying, Raul, that, that, that these shifts, when jobs shift, it's not always the same people. In fact, it's rarely the same people who make that tr transition. And that's going to be a very difficult time for a lot well, of so people who have been caught in this catalyst of change, which COVID has become. Yeah, so some of this time, you know, with the social unrest and, a, and the really concerning crisis and the feeling of despair that's coming and is there in some places, reminds me of a lot of when I was young in the UK in the late 70s. Yeah. And Margaret Thatcher is still kind of claimed as the savior of it. And she did do a lot of things. She broke the unions and, you know, she kind of changed it from a much more socialist style economy to more free markets and it kind of happened at the right time and you know there's a lot of things that she did that i don't like but she you know, she did a lot of good things too and um but what was interesting is the uk had to move away from shipyards which the government had been supporting steel coal mining yeah and we've still got problems with those towns today where there's no yeah. jobs they never came back you can't we we couldn't retrain people Everybody tried, but the employers didn't want to go up to Scarborough or, you know, or all of the places where the, the, that industrial heartland was. So, I, yeah. you know, we've, we, we've got problems. I mean, I think brick and mortar retail, which is a huge employer in the United States, is in massive trouble because basically everyone's learned I, I don't need to, except for the personal items that I want to see. We're so used to a digital image and choosing it. I mean, I bought some things for my house here in Little Cayman, you know, online and furniture that in my old world, what? I'd order some furniture um, without seeing it, but it's normal now. We're kind of used to a website and 3D imagery makes it possible for us to have a decent look at what that coffee table looks like. So I'll buy it. And if I understand the weight, which is one of the things that you do, you want to know, is it solid? Well, as long as they put the weight and the dimensions and the stuff, you pretty much know what you're going to get and you can return it. Okay, it's not so easy when I'm on an island of 140 people close to the outside world. But generally speaking, why do you need a shop? Yeah. Trying on clothes, I, I get it. But what, do shops just stay open for weekend traffic? It's, it's a different world and I'm not sure we're going back to the world we were in. Of course, we'll go back to some of it. The other point I want to make about marginal change, which I think is really key, is everybody's looking at this ridiculous uptick in weekly data. Look, they're getting back in their cars. Look, they're spending more on their credit cards. And look, look at the trajectory. We're back to normal in no time. Well, if you look at everywhere else around the world, it never got back to normal. It stops somewhere between down five and down 20%, whatever part of the economy you're looking at. Yeah. Which, that's the issue, is where does it finish? because it doesn't look like it goes back to normal because of the issues that we've got and the behavioral impacts and a number of things. And at the margin, a 5% loss of retail spending for six months, nine months is catastrophic for that industry. You know, that's all of the malls going into bankruptcy and we're already seeing some of that now. So 
these are the things that I'm interested in is I understand the rate of change from the low to the high, and that's what's driven the market. But where is that high and how much are we down from, from normal activity over time? Yeah, these are these are very important questions. I think it's reasonable to say that the idea of a V-shaped recovery where the top of the right-hand side of the V is the same height of the top of the left-hand side of the V is never going to happen. No, no. So, and that's what, I mean, I fear the worst wording in the world is, that's what everybody I respect is saying. That usually means we're all about to be wrong, right? Yes. <laughs> so, so assuming I am wrong, um, yeah, no, I, I, I don't see it. I really don't see it. And, and all the people I really trust in this space just don't see it. Clearly, everyone's scratching their head saying, I don't know what the market's been saying, the equity market. The bond market's been pretty consistent with this theme. It's gone nowhere. You know, stuff like the credit names, the triple B credit names have also been very weak in their rebound. And the dollar's been range bound and gold's been range bound and Bitcoin's been range bound. So they're all saying, hey, listen, there's no real, there's nothing going on, but we haven't made a decision yet um, whether things are going to get much worse or not. It was only the equity market that did something different. And I tend to discount it. You know, the other thing I haven't asked you about that I'm really curious to hear since we last spoke is the Fed is now buying individual corporate credits. Yes. And the Europeans have done it for years, right? Um, the Fed, I think, understand that doom loop dynamics. And within that list of the doom loop that I did in that recession watch series a long time ago, I said the Fed buy credit. Um, and here they are buying credit. It just all happened much faster because of the event that we had. But the point being is they don't want the triple Bs to get downgraded to junk because there's no buyers of junk. And then they have to buy those. And that's why they're saying we're buying falling angels. They're trying to stop the cascade of the doom loop. Yeah. It blows up the pension system. Okay, great. Well done, Fed. What happens is the equity goes to zero. European banks are a classic example. You know, the European bank bonds won't go to zero because the governments will, will not let the banks essentially go to zero in that respect, i.e. default on all their obligations because they can't allow it. But the equity can go to zero and wipe out the shareholder equity. And I think that is what I, I'm expecting to see in... in Companies like GE, I'm expecting to see the, the shareholder equity get wiped out because the credit markets are distorted now by the Fed buying them. Now, will they buy enough in a solvency event? That's a different issue. I think they're still fighting a liquidity event within the pension system. I think that's the real issue here. Um, to allow companies to get funding as well is the other issue. So if I could support your credit, then you can get funding. So then your balance sheet's okay for a bit longer. So, you know, we've seen record debt issuance by US corporations and we're seeing the same in Europe right now. So everyone's trying to shear up their balance sheet as, as much as possible. That corporate behavior, they're not buying back shares, they're, they're not spending on infrastructure, they're raising cash. And it tells you they have, they're fearing their cash flows in the future. So their activity is telling you that they're fearing that solvency event more than their expecting growth to return back to normal. We'll wait and see what happens next week. Talking of which, Ralph, the week after next, June 29th and June 30th. Yep, that's the crypto gathering. So everybody watching this, look, you may not think or understand how crypto is going to change everybody's world, but it is. And I think it's really worth the price of admission. If you're a Real Vision subscriber, it's all free anyway. So go in and dig in. You may not agree, you don't think the world's changing, but you can't ignore it. So we really have tried to curate the most epic 
group of people from every from every aspect and the best communicators in the world because it is a complicated space because where technology meets wonky finance meets kind of libertarianism and philosophical ideas uh, meets behavioral economics you know it's the juxtaposition of everything it's a complicated world but yeah. it's like the um, incredible interview that I had with that Santiago Velez. I mean, Santiago will be joining us on it as well, but it's going yeah. to be an eye opener for everybody. Yeah. And Arthur Hayes as well from BitMEX, you uh, interviewed the same week as well. You know, if you don't disagree with someone, we're not doing our job. <laughs> exactly right. And, you know, uh, you know, I mentioned um, some of this on on Twitter. And before you know it, there's the crypto, the Bitcoin guys versus the Ethereum guys and the gold guys versus the Bitcoin. It's like it's hilarious. And for Real Vision, that's why it's called The Gathering. It's all welcome and all tribes come together. Yes, we're going to uh, be the hosts of a truce. <laughs> I don't know if we'll get a truce, but we'll get everybody in the same room. Yes, indeed. Ralph, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, great to see you, Ash. Have a fantastic weekend and everybody watching as well. Have a lovely summer weekend. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.